free. I'm Shannon Green. Tension over record numbers of migrants crossing the southern border ratcheting up in the new year. As officials around the country point fingers over who's to blame for overwhelmed cities across the U.S. It's outrageous uh, that they're saying uh, that they cannot deal with this. Pressure growing to fix the record influx into the country. The face-off between red and blue America reaching a boiling point. What Governor Abbott has done, it just wants to create chaos. But is common ground possible? I don't think any one city should have to solve this problem alone. I've reached out to Governor Abbott and offered to work together. We'll speak with Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott and Denver Democratic Mayor Mike Johnston about seeking solutions. Then inside the Washington Beltway. House Republicans themselves voted to decrease the amount of Border Patrol agents by 2,000. Instead of taking responsibility and providing leadership, this administration has done nothing but attack elected officials. Little sign of working anything out between the White House and Congress as a government shutdown looms. No more money for this bureaucracy uh, of his government until you've brought this border uh, under control. A group of bipartisan senators comes forward to try to work something out. We'll speak exclusively with the GOP's lead negotiator, Oklahoma Senator James Lankford. And President Biden hits the stump. Trump's assault on democracy isn't just part of his past. It's what he's promising for the future. He says that I'm bad for democracy. He's bad for democracy for another reason. He's incompetent. We'll get reaction from our Sunday panel and get their take on the opening salvos for 2024. All right now on Fox News Sunday. Hello from Fox News in Washington. Fresh off the highest single month of illegal crossings in U.S. history, the pressure to pass sweeping border security reforms attached to aid for Israel and Ukraine gears up as the clock ticks towards a potential government shutdown. Republicans who have long called for tighter border restrictions have found unlikely support from blue city mayors calling on the White House for swift action to address the surge of migrants in their cities as their areas become overwhelmed with buses full of people being transported to their cities by border state Republicans. In a moment, we're going to talk with two leaders at the center of this debate, Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott and Denver Democratic Mayor Mike Johnston. But first, we turn to Casey Stiegel, live from the southern border in Eagle Pass, Texas. Hello, Casey. Shannon, good morning. A new year has started with new activity out here on the front lines of this escalating crisis. Migrants climbed through the border wall this week in Lukeville, Arizona, after cartels cut a hole in the steel structure. While in Eagle Pass, Texas, hundreds continued to illegally cross and turn themselves in. They're just, you know, waiting to be arrested, knowing full well that if they're arrested and uh, uh, claim political asylum, will be processed as a political asylee until their case is heard. CBP sources tell Fox more than 302,000 migrant encounters were recorded at the southern border last month. That's roughly the entire population of Pittsburgh. Every state and city in this country is a border state. House Speaker Mike Johnson led a delegation of more than 60 Republican lawmakers to Eagle Pass, where they put pressure on Democrats to reach a deal on immigration restrictions. While on the ground, Johnson also made this prediction about 
about the 2024 election. But I do believe, in large measure, because of this issue, I do think that we're going to have a change in the White House. I think we're going to have a Republican president. I think we're going to win the Senate, and we're going to expand the majority in the House as well. The administration shot back, accusing the GOP of standing in the way. We have House Republicans that's literally blocking the president's effort to do something. That's what they're doing. They're playing political games. And all eyes will be on Washington next week with DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas facing an impeachment inquiry on Wednesday. But first, he will travel back down here to Eagle Pass for another operational visit scheduled for tomorrow. Shannon? We know you'll have us uh, covered on that. Casey Stiegel live at the southern border. Thank yeah. you, Casey. Joining us now, Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott. Uh, Governor, welcome back to Fox News Sunday. I want to start here. You know we've got the lead negotiator for the GOP in the Senate coming up, Senator James Lankford. Um, the White House says it needs more money. He says they're pressing for policy changes. What's the number one thing you would tell Senator Lankford you need to get the border under control? We need to stop the magnet that is enticing people to cross our border illegally, coming from more than 150 countries across the entire globe. And the way that you do that uh, is to deny asylum to anybody crossing between a port of entry. Uh, make, if, if you have a valid asylum claim, you can go to one of those ports of entries, of which we have 29 just in the state of Texas alone. You must make them uh, seek asylum uh, from either the country they are fleeing or from Mexico or some other safe country they go into. Uh, that would dramatically uh, cut down on the number of people that you see uh, coming across the border every single day. The second thing that must be done is uh, they must end uh, the catch and release policies that the <clears throat> Biden administration has put into place. Uh, candidly, the, the law already prohibits uh, the, the mass uh, 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 allowance uh, of uh, people getting out uh, and wandering the country for years before they ever have to go to court. The Biden administration simply is not enforcing that. They must hold uh, the Biden administration responsible uh, and, and d deny them the ability to have catch and release. Governor, are you in talks with the Biden administration, with the White House at all? So, Shannon, know this, and, and that is I, I provided uh, eight letters uh, to the Biden administration, which includes the, the president and Mayorkas, and I, I personally handed uh, a letter to President Biden uh, and to Secretary Mayorkas when they uh, showed up in El Paso, Texas, outlining five things that they could do uh, that would eliminate the crisis at the border. Shannon, uh, in response to all eight of those letters, I've heard absolutely nothing from the Biden administration. Okay, you have heard from New York City where the mayor there has announced uh, a lawsuit. He says the tens of thousands of people that have been bussed in by you to his city, uh, it's overwhelmed. And so they've announced this lawsuit this week that is against the bus companies that brought the people there. They're citing this New York law that says any person who knowingly brings or causes to be brought a needy person from out of the state into the state for the purpose of making him a public charge is going to be guilty of a misdemeanor. They talk about fines and it goes on to say they have to support them at their own expense. So they're suing these 17 bus companies for more than $700 million. You're not a party to this, but do you worry that this is an attempt to shut down companies that would do business with the state of Texas uh, and scare away other companies from doing that? And will you get involved at all with the defense legally of these companies? 
Well, for, for one, there's no worry whatsoever for several reasons. One is, it's, it's a joke. It's really a political statement uh, by the mayor of New York. You know, you talked about what uh, the purpose was of that statute. O on the face of the statute alone, that's not the purpose uh, why the buses are uh, moving people to New York City. Uh, second, uh, what the mayor did, the mayor sued the wrong party. Uh, if, if the mayor really is trying to cut down on the number of illegal immigrants coming into New York, he needs to be suing Joe Biden, not these bus companies, because it's Joe Biden and Joe Biden's policies uh, that's causing the uh, massive multi-million influx into the United States that leads to many of them wanting uh, to go to New York. But the third thing I will tell you, and that is the lawsuit is completely legally baseless, and, and the mayor is going to lose very badly for this very specific reason, and that is everybody who uh, is bused to or are uh, planed to New York uh, is already authorized by the Biden administration to be within the United States legally, and because of that, that means that they have the legal right to travel wherever they want in the United States, uh, and the lawsuit by the mayor uh, violates the United States constitutions in several respects, uh, and the mayor is going to lose and lose badly, and I hope he is forced uh, to pay the legal fees uh, for the cost of anybody having to defend against that lawsuit. So that's just one of the many lawsuits we'll be tracking in conjunction with what's happening at the border. The DOJ is also suing you, suing the state of Texas over new law that you've passed there that would allow um, police officers and law enforcement to arrest people who are in the state of Texas after crossing in illegally from Mexico would even give some state officials the ability to remove or to deport them. Um, but the, what the DOJ is reporting to, uh, they're pointing to um, what the Supreme Court did, a case I covered back in 2012, uh, when Arizona had a similar state law, they shut it down. They said essentially um, that the purview of immigration and handling the border is left to the federal government and states can't get involved here. What's your argument for overturning that precedent with this law? Well, there, there, I have three arguments to make sure that we are going to win that case. But first, I got to point out that this is just uh, one of many lawsuits that Joe Biden is filing against the state of Texas. Uh, they filed to uh, eliminate the buoys uh, that we put in the water that would deny uh, illegal entry into the state of Texas. Uh, we are in the United States Supreme Court right now, where Joe Biden is begging the United States Supreme Court to uh, to allow the Border Patrol to cut uh, the more than a hundred miles of razor wire that we put up that denies illegal entry into the state of Texas, and now they're suing uh, to stop this new law that I signed. This law was crafted in a way to ensure that it was going to be constitutional. First, uh, it's drafted in a way that does not conflict with federal law. The Arizona law did conflict with federal law. The state of Texas law does not conflict with federal law, and hence that's one reason why we will avoid the preemption allegation made by the federal government. Well, uh, the second one is, is preemption does not apply uh, because uh, the federal government is refusing to enforce the laws passed by Congress because they are not enforcing the laws passed by Congress. Uh, the law that we pass simply enforces the laws passed by Congress. Shannon, the third reason why the Texas case is different than the Arizona case is we are relying upon preemption ourselves uh, under uh, Article 4, Section 4, and Article 1, Section 10 of the United States Constitution that authorizes Texas to do this. Okay, you talk about it, it that there, that Texas is not taking over uh, what the feds 
Republicans would be doing. But they essentially say essentially you are. If you're going to arrest people in Texas for being here illegally, that that's their purview when it comes to deciding who to deport and how to handle immigration in the border. They say there is a direct crossover with what Texas is doing. Well, well, Shannon, there's not. Listen, you and I are both lawyers, and you know what I'm about to talk about. Hopefully, we will not lose the audience here. But uh, they they rely upon what's called field preemption, and what that means is that uh, the laws passed by Congress uh, preempt the field or the the totality uh, of the ability for states to do something different. However, uh, that field preemption that the federal government is relying upon presumes that the federal government will be enforcing the law passed by Congress. In this case, uh, the federal government is not enforcing the laws passed by Congress. In fact, they're acting contrary to the laws passed by Congress. That creates the opening uh, for Texas to be able to uh, enact a law that, that simply enforces the very same laws passed by the United States Congress. All right. Well, Governor, I'll track that. We'll see if it comes uh, and winds up here at the Supreme Court as that Arizona law did. We're tracking the razor wire case, too. Governor, thanks for your time. Thank you, Shannon. Joining us now, Denver Democratic Mayor Mike Johnston. Uh, Mayor, welcome to Fox News Sunday. Thank you so much for having me. Good morning, Shannon. Okay, so let's start here. Uh, Texas has sent tens of thousands of people, bus them to Denver, where you're now dealing with that situation. Um, you've talked about how overwhelming it is there. We'll get into some of the things that you're requesting, work permits and those kinds of things. Um, but there's word now that Denver is also giving people one-way tickets to places like Chicago, like New York. Those mayors have said, we can't take people. We're overwhelmed. So knowing the strain you've got there in Denver, why then send people onto these other cities as well? Sure, Shannon. Just one thing. Listen to the governor's point. I mean, I think I spend a lot of time each day talking to our newcomers that have arrived in Denver, and it's important to understand these stories. I mean, these are folks almost all from Venezuela. They've walked 3,000 miles. It's taken probably three or four months. Many of them are women with kids. These are professionals. These are school principals and engineers. And a woman I talked to who was a police officer who, you know, refused to tear gas people in her own country and so was threatened to be killed by her state and so fled, right? These are the definition of what the Statue of Liberty says on send us your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. I mean, those are the stories we see every day, and they are tragic. And at the same time, I understand Governor Abbott's point. We agree no one state or no one city uh, should be expected to carry the entire weight of this arrival. But these are human beings with real suffering who are going through incredible feats to get here. But yes, what we have is many folks that arrive in Denver who had no intention of arriving in Denver, never meant to come to Denver. They do have family in the United States. They do have networks. They have a friend who has a job for them or a place to stay. And they were trying to get to a Chicago or a Los Angeles or a Nevada. And so if they were sent to Denver through no goal of their own, then we help them arrive at the city where they were trying to arrive. And other cities do the same with us. We have folks that get sent to us from New York or from Chicago because they did have family networks here. And we think that's the best way to set them up for success, especially if they don't have work authorization in the city where they're arriving. You've talked about work permits. And I want to uh, put up something that Senator John Cornyn out of Texas has said about this. He says, when Biden tells migrants do not come to the U.S. and then creates a magnet like work permits, it undermines all deterrence. So do you agree with those who would say the reality is millions of people will be encouraged to take dangerous, illegal journeys to the U.S. if they believe once they get here, they'll be able to work. And if you dig up those um, permits there in Denver, are there really tens of thousands of open jobs that these folks could fill? There are, Shannon. The tragic part for me every day is I talk to migrants who will look at me and say, Mr. Mayor, you know, I have strong hands. I got a big back. I have a big heart. All I want to do is to work. Can I please work? 
And at the same time, I have CEOs who call me every day and say, we got hundreds of open jobs, restaurants, hotels, landscape, construction. All of these industries are massively understaffed and conservative CEOs who want to be able to hire those people. And our challenge is there's nothing more un-American than looking a hard worker in the face and saying, please, please don't work here in America. Just sit and let the government support you. That is the opposite of what these individuals want and what we want. And uh, I don't want to be the one to tell them not to work. But do you agree it's a magnet to draw people here when the administration will stand up and say, don't come, which the vice president says repeatedly. And then when they get this message, of course, if there's an economic opportunity here, uh, they will come regardless of their legal status when they get here. I think it is absolutely in the purview of the Congress to figure out what they want their admission policy to be based on what we think our capacity is to support those arrivals. I can tell you we have far more open jobs right now than we have arrivals, I think. But what we know is this works if you coordinate that entry. You know, if you have cities and states who collaborate the same way we did when we brought in refugees from Ukraine or refugees from Afghanistan, we identified cities that had capacity. We brought them in with work authorization. We gave them some federal support. And those people have succeeded tremendously. I mean, the great untold story here is the city of Chicago has more Ukrainian asylum seekers who have arrived in the last year than Venezuelans. And you couldn't find a single one of them if you looked in Chicago because they all have work authorization. They have jobs. They're in neighborhoods contributing because they had that infrastructure. So I'm actually hopeful uh, that this is really a solvable problem. And I think that we can solve it. It just takes us working together to do it. Mm -hmm. We well, also know in Chicago, a lot of the local residents there have now begun to speak out at very heated meetings and public um, events saying they cannot manage this, that the city is being overwhelmed, their schools, their parks, their shelters. Um, people are very angry with leadership there because it isn't being managed well. I know for you in Denver, you've said this could impact 10 to 15 percent of your budget in the next year, $180 million to try to care for people in a responsible, yeah. humane way. What do you then tell the taxpayers of Denver about what's going to get cut in order for that to happen? I agree with you, Shannon. It is unsustainable in the current structure. When we have 30 or 40,000 people arriving without work authorization, without federal support, it is going to be a huge strain on cities. Uh, but that doesn't mean we can't uh, solve it. We could solve it if we actually had work authorization for folks that came, if we had resources at the border so that you could adjudicate these asylum claims faster. We have folks that arrive in Denver and their court dates are 2029. 20, mm -hmm. It's five years out because the courts are so backlogged. If you could put capacity at the border to administer these asylum claims in 30 or 60 days, decide who has a valid claim, and then send them to interior cities with work authorization, even while they're waiting to hear that claim, we could put them to work, we could solve this. And what I always say is there's a direct relationship. The more work authorization the federal government gives us, the less federal resources they give us. If you send us someone to Denver who has to wait six years for a court hearing and they can't work in the meantime, we're going to need almost endless amounts of federal support. I don't think that's what we want or the federal government wants. Yeah, and yet those authorizations will attract apparently millions more people People. Um, and as you said, trying to humanely care for them is a whole other challenge for every city that's facing this. A Denver Mayor Mike Johnston, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. All right, outrage building here in Washington over an extraordinary breach of protocol. The Pentagon waiting three and a half days to tell the White House that Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was hospitalized in intensive care and even longer to tell Congress and the public. We're going to get reaction from GOP Senator James Lankford, who sits on the Intel and Homeland Security Committees. He's live next. Okay, everyone. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says he takes full responsibility for not disclosing to the White House and the public that he'd been hospitalized in intensive care for days following complications from an elective procedure. 
The White House learned the news Thursday. Congress and the public didn't find out until Friday. In a statement released last night, Austin says, quote, I recognize I could have done a better job ensuring that public was appropriately informed. I commit to doing better. The Pentagon Press Association had said Friday the public has a right to know when U.S. cabinet members are hospitalized. As the nation's top defense leader, Secretary Austin has no claim to privacy in this situation. Joining me now to talk about that and much more, Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma. Um, Senator, welcome to the show. You sit on the Intel Committee. When did you get word of this, and do you think we should have known more sooner? I got word of this yesterday when the news started breaking uh, to be able to come out on it. It's pretty shocking on this because when you're the Secretary of Defense, uh, you need to make everyone aware that you're actually going to be out of pocket. It's worse than just he didn't notify the White House. They actually notified the White House and everyone else that he was working from home during that time period when he was actually hospitalized and his number two was on vacation and not available as well. Uh, even the apparently the National Security Council didn't know it. The White House didn't know it. Congress didn't know it. We're at a time of a lot of turmoil internationally and suddenly have the Secretary of Defense more than just a matter of wasn't there, actually sent over false information saying I'm working from home when he's not actually available at all. That's a whole different issue. Well, he says he takes responsibility for the disclosure, so I'm sure there will be many more questions to come. Uh, in the meantime, you've been uh, day after day after day been involved in negotiations on what's happening with the border deal. Um, the administration says it needs more money. Uh, Republicans have been pushing for policy change. So can you tell us, are you getting to substantive changes that will actually mean something at the border? And when will we see text or know something more? So we're hoping to get text out by later on this week, but nothing's been done in this area for decades. Uh, as you know full well, the Biden administration has authorities they're choosing not to use. But even during the Trump administration, they struggled in certain years because they're limited in some of the authorities that are there. So there's a desperate need in the change in the way we handle asylum, in the process that we actually do for asylum. We've got to end, catch, and release. That means we've got to have more bed space to actually be able to process. We've got to have more people to be able to process. But we've got to fix the process as well. So it's not just a dollars issue. And I would tell you, the, the House and the Senate Republicans have been very upset that the White House continues to say, if you send us more money, we'll fix this. When money has been sent to the White House, they've used that money to facilitate more people coming into the country rather than actually stopping the flow on it. So let's deal with the policy issues on it. Let's change catch and release. Let's change the way we're handling asylum so that real asylees get in and folks that are just gaming the system to be able to be here for a decade before their hearing is done, they're actually turned around. So text maybe this week? Text hopefully this week to be able to get that out. Everybody will have time to be able to read it and go through it. No one's going to be jammed in this process. Uh, okay. But it's a matter of trying to be able to get this out. But to make law, we've got to have a Democrat Senate, a Democrat White House, and a Republican House to be able to go mm -hmm. through this. So this agreement has to work. Everyone's counting on this actually working. But it's going to have to be agreement that a White House, uh, that it's a Democrat White House and a Democrat Senate can also line up with a Republican House. And mm -hmm. we're working to thread that needle for things that actually work. Yeah, and it sounds like it's going to be a very difficult thing to accomplish. Um, Speaker Johnson, who was at the border this week and took dozens of House lawmakers down there, all Republican, um, there are reports that he's thinking about negotiating directly with the White House. How would that impact what you're doing? And is the greater concern that even if you get a deal done in the Senate, it can't get through the House GOP, where you have some folks over there making some very concrete demands about what it's going to take to get their vote? 
Yeah, I would say the Speaker should always be engaging with the White House. That should be the basic role of the Speaker and of the Leader of the Senate to be able to negotiate with the White House. Obviously, the House has not been heard. They passed a very strong bill, it was H.R. 2, that laid out principles of here's how to resolve the issues of the border. Unfortunately, there was not a single Democrat that actually voted for that. So the House has put out, this is what actually fixes everything. Now the Speaker's got to be able to sit down with the White House and to be able to work out how we're going to actually be able to get there. That's the same thing we're doing as the Senate to be able to work through how we're going to get Republicans and Democrats in the Senate on board, something that actually makes a difference on our border, and then to be able to get it passed and in the House. If we can pass this in the days ahead in the Senate, send it over the House, House can work to improve it, or the House can take a serious look at it and say, let this makes real progress uh, on the border. Let's go get this, bank this, and then keep going for more. Okay, how much of the border concerns you when it comes to the national security interest? And with that in mind, um, Secretary Marcus, we're told, is heading back down there again. He's also facing impeachment in the House. Do you think he's doing a good job when it comes to national security? Do you support what the House is doing with respect to impeachment? Well, I would I would tell you at this point, I don't think anyone sees that it's going well at the border. I don't find Republicans, Democrats, independents, anyone that looks at the border and says that's going well, that's being handled well. The problem that Secretary Mayorkas has is that he's working for the president of the United States, and these are the president's policies. Uh, president Trump had a consistent set of policies, but he had, I think, four different secretaries of Homeland Security. But the policy was consistent on the border, regardless of who the secretary of Homeland Security was. Uh, because he had a set of policies. These are the Biden policies. So the problem is President Biden's policies on the border, not Mayorkas in the way he's carrying it out. And this is a big national security issue, as you mentioned before. We've had literally tens of thousands of people just in the past year that this administration has labeled as a national security risk. They were given the designation special interest aliens. That definition is they are a national security risk. And then they were released into the country into this decade-long backlog. That is a terrible idea to be able to do. So not only do we have individuals that are coming in the country that don't qualify for asylum, and all of us know they don't qualify for asylum, and they're just being released in the country in this backlog, we also know that there are people that are national security risk and have been labeled by those White House as this that are being re released in the country, and we literally have no idea where they are. Okay, with that in mind, Secretary Marcus says he's been advising your group. I don't know if you've been meeting with him face-to-face -face or having conversations, but how in the world does he respond to that information, the reality of it? Yeah, he, he is not actually doing this policy. He is actually providing what's called technical assistance in it. When we're negotiating things out, at times we have to go back to Homeland Security and say, what is operationally, how does this actually work on the ground to be able to get that? But we're driving the policy issues, but we are reaching out to him to go through technical assistance in the process as well. Okay. I would tell you, he has said several times, give me more authorities and I'll take this on. At this point, we're going to test it out and try to make sure of that because the biggest thing we can do is actually try to have mandates in this that we actually enforce the border and to be able to take on the issue of how we actually handle asylum again. Because th this has been a big problem now for over a decade. Mm -hmm. It does not get better by doing nothing. It gets better by doing something. Congress has to pass something. And after decades of doing nothing in this, We've got to pass something to make this better. Well, and quickly, this is all tied to the bigger package the White House wants on aid for Ukraine and for Israel. We're looking at a potential government shutdown looming in the next couple of weeks uh, against this backdrop. Um, your other negotiator on this, Democrat Chris Murphy, Senator, has said this. Um, the fate of the world is at stake in these talks. He, he tweeted this uh, on Christmas Day. It's up to Republicans in Congress whether this is the last Christmas in a free, free Ukraine. The fate of the world, is that how this feels to you? 
Well, it, there's a lot that's all tied up into this. The president put together a request for national security and did a request for Israel, Ukraine, what's happening in Indo-Pacific with a, a rising, more aggressive China, and then also border security. But at the same time, he said, you know, we, we just need funds for all that. We responded back and said, we understand the funds for Israel. We understand the funds in Taiwan, the funds in Ukraine. But this is not a funding issue along the border. This is a policy issue, and we're demanding a real change in policy. We're engaging to be able to help the rest of the world. We're, we're the role model for the world on freedom. We understand that engagement as who we are as the United States of America. But we also have a responsibility to protect our own country, and we're going to do that. Senator, thank you for the update. We'll watch for that text this week. Appreciate your time. Thank you. GOP presidential candidates make their closing arguments, barnstorming Iowa just days ahead of the state's critical first-in-the-nation caucuses. As Presidents Biden and Trump each say the other one is the dire threat to democracy. Our Sunday panel on where the race stands, they're live next. Republican presidential hopefuls are making a final push in Iowa ahead of the first votes officially of the 2024 election. Former President Trump looking to cement his frontrunner status as his rivals look to cut into his lead. Fox News national correspondent Bill Malugin is live in Des Moines. All right, Bill, what are you hearing from those possible caucus goers there? They're excited to get out there, Shannon. Look, we are just eight days away from the first in the country, Iowa caucuses. It is officially crunch time for these candidates. And look, we're all going to find out, do these polls actually match reality? And these candidates are making their final push. The people of this state are going to cast the most important vote of your entire lives. The blitz is on in the Hawkeye state. I'm running for your family's issues. I'm running solely for this country. The energy on the ground is good. People want something new. The left will give you a vision. It's not the right vision. Time is running out for these GOP presidential candidates to make their pitch before Iowa voters make their choice on January 15th. Former President Trump maintains a huge lead in the polls, and the target on his back is getting bigger. When it comes to Trump, he can call me anything tax hike Haley. I never raised a tax. But why don't we ask him, oh, that's right, he won't get on a debate stage. I'm the only one running that has delivered on 100% of the promises that he's made. As governor, wouldn't it be nice to have somebody that was doing that again? But Trump is targeting President Biden, who called him a threat to democracy during a campaign speech in Valley Forge on Friday. He's willing to sacrifice our democracy, put himself in power. He runs out of fuel. The fuel doesn't last very long, so you notice the speeches, they start off very energetic. Uh, he's a threat to democracy. By the end, he's like, oh, uh, I got to get off. This is not this is not the man we should have for our president. And Shannon, Governor DeSantis seemed to really slam shut the idea that he would be anybody's VP candidate. Uh, he said he would not accept the VP position, quote, under any circumstance because he feels he wouldn't be able to get the job done as VP that he's been campaigning on. He says if it came to that, he would rather just finish out his term as Florida governor. We'll send him back to you. You rarely hear folks be that strident about it. Uh, Bill Malugin live in Iowa City in a couple days. Thank you, Bill. It's time now for our Sunday group. Steph Kite, Axios political reporter, former Democratic presidential candidate and Maryland Congressman John Delaney, Josh Holmes, former chief of staff to Mitch McConnell and editor in chief of Jewish Insider. 
Josh Crashauer. We've got the two Joshes yeah, back together you. today on all of us. Um, happy New Year. Good to see all of you. Okay, so let's start there. We, we had this speech from President Biden on Friday, which was very dark. It harkened back to some other speeches he's given, saying, listen, I am here to save democracy and freedom. Um, Josh, does it work? Because then we see the mockery you get from former President Trump, who's like, bring it on. You're the real threat to democracy. Well, look, Shannon, it's a throwback to the successful 2020 campaign message from then candidate Joe Biden. He was going to save the soul of America. And it was it's, if you look at the polls, you see that issue of democracy. January 6th is the one of the few issues, frankly, that Democrats are have an advantage on when it comes to to, to just democracy and the, the fundamentals of of democracy. The challenge, though, is that Biden is now the incumbent. He has a record that he has to defend. Trump is the challenger. He's out of office. So voters care a lot more about the border. They care about the economy. They care about a lot of other issues where Biden has a very deep record on. And they're not viewing this White House favorably on those other issues. So, look, it's going to be an issue. It's going to be one that Democrats feel like they have to go back to because it is a winning issue for them. But there are a lot of other issues, bread and butter issues, that voters care, care a lot more about right now. Well, and staying with this theme, tomorrow the president is going to move on to South Carolina and speak there. This is how the Philadelphia Inquirer uh, puts it. They say at Mother Emanuel AME, the church there in Charleston next week, Biden expected to call out white supremacy along with the assault on the nation's capital on January 6th. He'll make an appeal to black voters whose support for Biden has decreased in polls compared with 2020. Biden is also losing support among Hispanic and young voters, polls show. So, Josh, what has he got to do in that speech tomorrow? Well, look, I mean, somebody's going to win this election, but it's not going to be with hope and optimism, obviously. And I think the president's early first two speeches show you exactly how they intend to run this entire campaign. He's got a record that, frankly, the American people don't believe in. And when you have that set of circumstances, you got to figure out how to bring an opponent down to where you're at. And where he's at is in the mid-30s from an approval standpoint. So he's got to try to provoke anything he can to get a base of support, some energy. And they've shown very little at this point. And then he's got to try to figure out what unites the middle of the electorate. And in 2020 and 2022, as Josh said, he had some success in, in convincing center-right sort of suburban electorate that this guy, Donald Trump, is a danger and is a threat. Whether or not that actually takes a precedent over how people feel about the economy or the border or whatever remains to be seen. But he doesn't have a lot of plays in the playbook. This might be the only one he's got. Well, President Obama counts among those, according to The Washington Post, who is worried about what's going on. They talk about uh, a, the lunch that he had with President Biden. Um, it said former President Barack Obama has raised questions about the structure of the president's reelection campaign and that he grow, quote, animated in discussing the 2024 election and former President Donald Trump's potential return to power, John, uh, is the White House missing some opportunity here to be campaigning in a different way? Do you think they're taking Donald Trump seriously? Oh, I think they're taking Donald Trump seriously. I think, I think the president is talking about these issues not only because they're good for him politically. He did win the election in 2020 precisely on these issues. So we have a roadmap to show that they work. But I also think he cares about these things. I mean, the president understands that the United States is much more than lines on a map. He thinks we're a set of ideas and a set of principles, and he believes that at his core. So he's right to talk about these issues. He's the steward of our democracy. And we're on the anniversary of January 6th, a terrible dark day in our nation's history. And he's right to be out there reminding people what the stakes are and why it's important that we continue to strengthen our democracy and we continue to have a leader who actually cares about these issues. He also is going to run on the record. Part of the president's job is to make sure all the Democrats get back on the same page. If you look at the president's poll numbers, some of his numbers are, are soft because of Democrats. 
who think maybe he hasn't done enough on different issues, et cetera. They will come home as he continues to reiterate how successful his administration has been across the last three years. Or, Steph, did they stay home? Is there going to be a lack of enthusiasm over some of these issues to show up? Not that they would show up and vote for President Trump, but that they just don't show up. And that is the biggest concern right now. You, you know, we've all seen those polls. We know that Democrats are concerned that Biden may be lacking that in that enthusiasm that Democrats in particular really depend on when it comes to these important general elections. They need young people to turn out and vote. They need um, racial minorities to turn out and vote. And these are the areas where we're seeing people start to lose faith in President Biden. And I think we're starting to see really for the first time the strategy that the Biden campaign is trying to make, that we know that they see their successful issues being democracy and Dobbs, of course, you know, countering the Jan 6 narrative, countering Trump's, you know, anti-democratic language sometimes, and also, of course, abortion they see as another key issue. And then with this latest speech we're, we're looking forward to, we see Biden trying to, again, rebuild the coalition that he and former President Obama have depended on for so many years for and, success. And student loans, too. I would say you throw that in a little little side of student loans. And they understand, look, President Trump turns out two types of voters. Mm. He turns out Republican primary voters who are particularly loyal to him. And he turns out Democrats. Yeah, and no President Biden understands that. Well, President Obama understands that. I, none of us know what they talked about, but I'm sure they talked about that. Well, and, and speaking of turnout, um, expectations going into Iowa. Here's what Politico says. Trump and his aides have faced a unique problem, one that's now falling plainly into view. Expectations for a romp are sky high, and Trump himself has set them there, Josh. Yeah, he has. And there's nothing to disabuse people of that, right? Every poll that comes out shows him with mm-hmm. these massive leads. You've seen nobody be able to put together the kind of consolidation that Nikki Haley's had in New Hampshire in the state of Iowa so far. Ron DeSantis has made that sort of an Alamo moment for his campaign. He's going to have to figure Mm -hmm. out how to distance. If he's in second, he's going to have to have some distance to third, where Mm -hmm. where presumably Nikki Haley would finish. But he's got to be threatening Trump at some level in order to keep the momentum going to bring him through a state like New Hampshire, where he's not going to do very well, into South Carolina and ultimately the rest of the campaign. So I, you know, it feels anticlimactic in many ways, but uh, you never know. Iowa is a caucus state that does maybe some unpredictable things. Well, and it does, or we just don't know who wins, like happened uh, no, not, right. not too far in the past <coughs> in Iowa. Hopefully, Josh, we will know who wins there on election night. But how important is it? Because a lot of times the winner there is not the nominee or the president. Look, Trump is in dominant position in Iowa. I, I think that the news out of Iowa is not going to be a close race. It's going to be Trump doing a whole lot better in consolidating the party and, and showing that he has support with the socially conservative voters that Ron DeSantis has been spending a lot of money and, and really trying to capitalize on. I do think a secondary story, though, if Nikki Haley beats Ron DeSantis, yeah. finishes in second place in a state where she didn't spend quite as much time as DeSantis, doesn't have quite as much of the infrastructure, that could give her some huge momentum into New Hampshire, where Trump is a lot more vulnerable. Well, DeSantis says the ground game there is going to disprove these polls, and so we'll know a little bit more than a week from now. Okay, that's round one with the panel. Don't go anywhere, because up next, as President Trump makes his way across Iowa, the Supreme Court says it will wade into the battle over blue state efforts to keep him off the ballot. How quickly could the justices decide? That's a really important set of historic questions for this country to answer, and many of them are going to end up in front of a very MAGA-ized Supreme Court. MAGA-ized. 
next. Okay, Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse on Trump's legal battles ahead in 2024. We are back now with the panel. Um, and Steph, President Trump talked about this this weekend because he says they're going to go after the Supreme Court, try to talk them out of doing something that may be the right thing legally. Here's what he said Friday on the stump. He owns the Supreme Court. If they rule in his favor, it will be horrible for them. And we'll protest at their houses and we'll do all of the things that you see. And that puts pressure on people to do the wrong thing. Of course, he thinks the right thing is deciding in his favor. The court will have to muddle this out. But gosh, the court doesn't want to be in the middle of this. And they are on a numerous, numerous fronts in an election year. Yeah, I mean, the Supreme Court is going to be weighing in on the 2024 election cycle in a way that we have not seen in a very long time, if, if ever, to be frank. And, you know, we're seeing Trump already kind of starting to find the way he wants to message around this and kind of leave, leaving open a possibility that the court would side for him, that he would be clear to be on these ballots across the country, that um, you know, the court would put to rest some of these efforts that are still ongoing across the country to see if Trump should be removed from these ballots. There seems to be some confidence there that that might happen. And it's kind of interesting to hear him sort of defending a potential decision where, you know, up until now, he has tended to view himself as, you know, really the victim of the justice system, the victim of judicial um, decisions there. So it's certainly a different a different tactic we're seeing from the former president. On yeah. This. And Josh, there's also this issue of these obstruction charges to some January 6th um, defendants that are bubbling now up through the Supreme Court that he's charged with a couple of those same counts. Not a decision till June, but man, it feels like this is all on a collision course right before we get into the conventions. Yeah, look, we're going to be spending a lot more time focusing on the courtroom than the campaign trail because, look, Trump, the timing of this is very, very critical because if they were, the, the beginning of the January 6th trial was before Super Tuesday, maybe that would have some impact on the primary, but it's looking like it's going to take place later. And for Trump, these cases supercharge his support with the base. Mm -hmm. It actually helps him with Republican voters. Though there are some polls and some evidence that among swing voters, it could there could be some swing voters that look at Trump's legal problems, the possibility of a conviction, and they may actually vote for, for Joe Biden or vote for a third-party mm -hmm. candidate uh, if, if those legal situations worsen for Trump. So, look, the timing matters. Uh, Trump certainly, I think, has been helped by the legal mess he in, in the primaries. He predicted it would work for him. This is, it's like kryptonite uh, for, for the base. But it, it has been a challenge and a lot of wild cards to come when we look at the general election. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so I want to go across the street from the Supreme Court back to Capitol Hill because uh, an announcement from House GOP members this week that they're going to continue investigating the issues of anti-Semitism on campus. This comes just days after former Harvard President Claudine Gay wrote a lengthy piece in the New York Times. She said this, those who had relentlessly campaigned to oust me trafficked in lies and ad hominem insults. They recycled tired racial, racial stereotypes about black talent and temperament. They pushed a false narrative of indifference and incompetence. Um, Josh is sparking that conversation again about the conversations about DEI, about, mm -hmm. you know, race issues, all kinds of things that are blowing up again. Yeah, I, I can't think of an episode that has exposed a greater intellectual vacancy and a lack of accountability in the higher education system in this country than the Claudine Gay episode. And, and I think ultimately her answer is completely telling. It has nothing to do with her comments of anti-Semitism uh, that started all of this problem. No a mention of a plagiarism issue, which, by the way, is very real. Her problem is it's all racist. It's all uh, Republicans attacking me. Where's the accountability in any of that? Where This is something that the left has gotten way too far out over their skis on over the last, I would say, three, four years. 
And now you're seeing that start to be reeled back in by the American public and are demanding some accountability. This is, I'm not sure this is going away anytime soon. I think there are corporate boardrooms all over this country. They're going to be dealing with DEI in a very different way than they thought a couple of years ago. Well, and she has said her comments could have been better on the issue of anti-Semitism, but she does in this piece also say that the congressional hearing that she got caught up in felt like it was a trap that was laid for her. Um, but to the point, because you've been a businessman, John, and you have dealt with this, um, I'm sure at the corporate level, Axios had this interesting piece that said um, companies are backing away from DEI. Anything that smacks of a quota is out. They quote Diana Scott of Human Capital Center at the conference board. Um, businesses are pulling back from the DEI term. The focus is moving away from those three words towards efforts around, quote, well well-being and inclusion. How do American businesses now navigate this? Well, businesses, you know, whether they be for-profit businesses or any organization, understand that diversity is a strength, right? I started two businesses, took them public. My businesses were diverse. They were diverse by gender. They were diverse by race. And importantly, they were diverse by ideas, mm -hmm. right? You need a diversity of thought as well as a diversity of gender and race and other forms of diversity. You are stronger when you have those things. And businesses understand that, so they are not at all going to back away from that concept, right? If you take a business that had 100 white men who were progressive, and that was the entire workforce, you would love to compete against that business, right? Because you'd say they don't have a diversity of thought. And right. that's, that's how business that though, John? Is, isn't the problem that DEI has gotten away from the diversity of thought? And well, diversity for diversity's sake. You need diversity of thought, but you also need other forms of diversity as well. You do need well, gender diversity. You do need racial. Right. You need to think. You need to have a, a in an, any enterprise, whether it's the board or the team. You need to have people thinking about the world differently from their mm -hmm. own perspectives. And businesses understand that, so they're not going to back away from that. Now, there's court decisions and there's things about quotas, et cetera, that will change. But the fundamental notion that if you have a more diverse business, you're going to win in the playing field, businesses are not backing away from that. Yeah, and Bill Ackman, who is a um, well-known Harvard uh, alum who pushed for gay to be ousted, wrote a lengthy piece on X. It's very thought-provoking and worth yeah. reading because he says, yes, I, he's run businesses. And he was right to and push says, for her to be ousted, by the way. That has nothing to do. I mean, what she said in that hearing yeah. and the brazen anti-Semitism that has occurred on that campus it was right for her to resign. Yeah. Well, These and, are different issues. Right. And what he says is businesses should be about diversity on all those planes. Like yes. you say, diversity of thought. His fear was when he, the more he looked into what was going on with DEI on campus, he said it, it turned into oppressed versus oppressor, and it wasn't about diversity of all those kinds of things. That's right. It's worth a read. All right, panel, thank you very much. We'll see you next Sunday. The Israel Defense Forces announced the war effort against Hamas is changing gears. The very latest on what's happening in Gaza right now. We're going to take you live to Israel next. With the Freestyle Libre 3 system. Israel says its war against Hamas is entering a new phase. It plans to partially withdraw its forces in Gaza in the coming months. And some of the reservists who've been called up will return to civilian life. Trey Yangst is on the ground in Tel Aviv, Israel, with more on the current state of play. Hello, Trey. Shannon, good morning. It's been three months since the October 7th massacre, and the Israelis are still fighting for territory inside Gaza. Israel's goals in the Strip do remain the same, to look for the remaining hostages 
and also destroy Hamas military and governing capabilities. Battles have shifted further south, with the main fighting now taking place in central and southern Gaza. The ongoing military action falls amid the backdrop of diplomatic efforts. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Doha, Qatar, right now as part of a multi-country visit to the Middle East and the Gulf. Among his goals are to move forward a post-war plan for Gaza and avert a larger conflict between Israel and Lebanon. On Saturday, Hezbollah fired more than 40 rockets into northern Israel in what they called an initial response to last week's killing of a Hamas deputy chairman in Beirut. Now, the attack drew an immediate Israeli response with new airstrikes against Hezbollah command positions in southern Lebanon. America's top diplomat also looking to address a growing crisis in the Red Sea. Ongoing attacks from Iran-backed Houthi rebels against commercial shipping vessels are diverting vessels around Africa instead of traveling through the Suez Canal. Shipping giant Maersk announced Friday it would avoid the Red Sea for the foreseeable future. The move does add time and fuel costs, further interrupting global trade. Now, Israeli officials are increasingly pessimistic about finding a diplomatic solution to the rising tension across the region, and they are preparing for the possibility of a broader war. Shannon. Trey, our thanks always to you and your team. And a quick note this morning before we go. My podcast, Live in the Bream, drops fresh this morning. This week I chatted with best-selling author and journalist Mitch Album. We talk about his new book, The Little Liar. It is a riveting tale about the fight for truth in the middle of the Holocaust. And just a reminder, we are a week away, a little bit more, from the first votes of the 24 presidential election. The Iowa caucuses take place January 15th. Fox News Sunday will get you ready for the big day. We'll be live from Des Moines next Sunday. But for now, that's it for today. Thank you for joining us. I'm Shannon Bream. Have a great week. We'll see you next Fox News Sunday. Listen to Fox News Sunday ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.